so this is just completing some thoughts about an article. Um, it starts with a podcast comment that Sam Harris made, which was that the internet is the only thing keeping us sane in the time of the pandemic. And I wanted to add, and I think I will in the paragraph on this piece that I'm writing, that, uh, you know, there's a strong sense in which Harris's comment is exactly right, that it actually does help keep us sane since we've accepted basically, so you know, we've accepted social isolation. Um, you know, having access to the internet, to Zoom and all the other technologies that allow digital connections, network connections, um, actually does kind of provide a at least partial <laughs> cure. But I mean, I think that that the fact that that Harris is kind of right about this is actually also part of the problem because the deeper point is that we're kind of teetering. We already were kind of, in my view, teetering on the edge, on the kind of precipice of getting more completely sucked into uh, a virtual life, uh, like more completely prioritizing the online world more than the actual world. So we're, we're kind of in a broader, larger trajectory. We already are um, kind of living, threat, threatening, knocking at the door of, of, of replacing a lot of potential real-world experience with simulated experience and increasingly trying to make the simulated experience stand in for uh, the real stuff. So now we're sort of forced into this, and I think one way to look at it is that uh, it, <laughs> it either pushes us even further into uh, a kind of acquiescence to the simulated or it makes more clear that uh, these are these actually are only partial solutions, and that what we really crave is something that we haven't valued enough. Uh, so you know, obviously, I hope for the latter, but I think the 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 bigger point is that um, there's a kind of I think um, I call it like a paradox of technological solutionism, and the paradox is that. It does, in fact, provide a solution in, you know, in one context, looking at it one way. It does, in fact, provide a solution to a problem that's been framed and stated in, in a certain way. Um, but, in fact, these kinds of solutions, and this itself is a really rich and interesting question as to why, actually typically... Oh, and here was the trouble. Uh, it's raining, and I'm going to have to put my phone away. They, they, the, 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 it's too frequently these technological solutions to real-world world problems um, end up creating kind of like unanticipated consequences. And in a real, real broad stroke, the, uh, I mean, like a real broad brush way of looking at this, now what's going on? Ow, 
we have uh, rain drops keep falling on my head and on the phone and all kinds of weird things are happening to my phone now which is ironic um so yeah so like i started the piece talking so this is the piece i want to add the kind of paradox of solutionism and um you know what i what i want to say is um that uh you know, we cash this stuff out typically in, ter- in terms of privacy protection and, and data sharing, data privacy, and surveillance, which are all important points. I mean, the issue of privacy is a really practical hook into a broader discussion about the role of technology in our lives. Um, and it's kind of, there's an immediacy to privacy concerns too. I mean, like, if in fact you unwittingly provided some, you know, evil <laughs> emperor, some evil government, all your data, and then they use it to skew, skew an, an election. It has a kind of palpable, you know, impact and threat. Um, but, you know, like the drip drip of a world that is increasingly viewed as adequate if simulated, um, you know, like the the threat that I see of that is like we have yeah really my phone dude the threat the the threat that I see there is much more difficult to solve and it even kind of goes outside the scope of the internet proper so I start the article by talking about Harari who makes the point that the agricultural revolution was actually a great boon for agriculture. So like all of these previously like kind of, you know, here and there rare scattered like wild grains, lentils and wheats and so on, got domesticated and took over the planet. So they spread their DNA all over the planet and became like huge superstars, Super Bowl winners of the genetic lottery. like. Congratulations to rice and wheat, you know, and what, so they actually, in some sense, they were the winners of the agricultural revolution and including domestic animals here as well, goats and so on. Um, but people kind of ended up enslaved, right? So all of a sudden, like the day was defined as toiling under the sun in a field. Why? Well, because if you don't toil under the sun in the field, then the crops won't come out. And if the crops don't come out, then we don't eat. And well, why don't you leave the field? Well, if I leave the field, then there won't be anybody to gather the crops and so on. So you're actually locked in and enslaved to an innovation. So I think the general idea of being inadvertently and accidentally enslaved, kind of hoisted by our own petard, is actually a really deep observation about the, our interaction with the things that we create. Um, and I think like the, the current discussion is, if nothing else, an opportunity to talk more about that. Um, but, you know, I confess like, it's almost as troubling. I guess this is the last thing I'll say about this. 
because I've drifted away from the article now and I'm just making more general points, but it's almost as, as perplexing to think about untying the Gordian knot of like agrarian societies that gave rise to like, you know, record keeping, taxation, the state itself, you know, like, I mean, the, 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 like the, actually the pretty much the foundation of civilization was built on that. The hunter gatherers for their part, they were a mobile bunch, but they didn't really leave a lot to posterity. They kind of died in their stead. Like they didn't like bother to write anything down. And, uh, you know, we arguably didn't get a lot of culture from them, not because they were more placed further back in our history or prehistory, but because they just didn't fucking care to like civilization, the accoutrements of civilization that was spurred from the, from the agricultural revolution is kind of what we recognize as our own. And, but it's almost as perplexing to think about untying that knot to say like, well, what would we do? You know, it's only a very specific and, you know, quixotic, unique uh, solution for a particular person to leave it. But like as a society, I just don't understand what, like you can't retool society um, without, say, to make it slightly more modern data systems. Like you just... (laughs) There is no society, you know, like that isn't built on top of prior innovation like that. Um, But like I was like, I've been taking a long way to get to the point here. I think like the problem with our current Internet age, like we there is a problem just de facto, just I will just declare to anyone sensitive and intelligent that's thinking about this, that. The fact that we now think that we can't effectively live without the internet, it's the only thing keeping us sane. And it didn't exist for all intents and purposes three decades ago is a problem. Nothing that new can have such a dramatic effect on our ability to sustain, to live as human, as homo sapiens. Like it just, you know, like it, it can't be the case. So there is, there is, in some very real sense, a kind of modern delusion or addiction, or I don't know what's the proper descriptor at this point, but something bad. Um, that's the, that result is on its face just bad. Um, or I should say, ipso facto, by this fact alone, the observation is bad. Um, and... So yeah, that's point one. And then point two would be, it's really difficult. Like things without all remedies should be without regard. It's like, it's really difficult to think, you know, it's, in, it's, it's, it's almost inescapably the pull of the discussion is towards like, well, why would we get rid of like name anything else? And it's like, no, I don't mean get rid of, but then it's, it, the honest falls on me to, to, to clarify more. Like, I don't think we should get rid of the internet and I'd be the first one that would be griping and complaining, having no access to it. I, what I'm merely trying to raise at this point is a partial 
concept of there's a problem <laughs> without necessarily proposing a solution. Um, and also, not only that is the observation that there's a problem, I think, correct, but that the no solution practical or viable presents itself is itself another problem. So we're kind of stuck on a line that you can draw back to the agrarian revolution, the agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago. And I'm just basically winding that into the thread of, you know, our current malaise. So that's that. Okay, so in working on this piece, I wanna sketch the outline and then see where it can go. So this post has two purposes. One, to provide me with some uh, notes, as it were, to go refer back to. And two, I think the questions are worthy of an audience on a podcast. The issues and questions that are raised so the idea for the piece is it starts with uh, a curious little bit of intellectual history that Isaac Newton actually did most of his fundamental work on gravitation when he was actually effectively on lockdown. He was sheltering in place in a small farming community outside of Cambridge and there was a Black Plague. The Black Plague was devastating Western Europe at this time. And so he didn't really have an opportunity to go into Cambridge. He didn't have an opportunity like all of that surrounding area of England. Everyone was scared, witless, and confined to their homes for fear for the infection. So uh, it's interesting that sheltering in place or being on lockdown, as it were, need not be any impediment to innovation and certainly invites rather naturally a rethinking of what we want the future to look like. So we have an opportunity now. So I think the reason this isn't thought of in these terms is, well, you know, not everyone is Isaac Newton. I mean, that's, that's the obvious point. Um, but I think more importantly, we, very broad strokes, I think we tend to look at progress now in technological terms rather than original scientific insights. And it's a good reminder that some of the most important pieces of theory, really thoughts in the history of science, going back to its modern origin in the Enlightenment, came from people who had important leaps jumps away from the paradigm that they were in. Um, it's certainly true of Copernicus, who said, yeah, I think the Earth goes around the sun and not vice versa. That idea was firmly entrenched in a, a Ptolemaic paradigm, which was about 800 years old, and um, had a geocentric view of the universe. The model was actually supported very well uh, by just volumes of data, that astronomical data that had been collected over the centuries and had been given even more, been put on steroids effect, effectively with Tycho Brahe, who 
built a big observatory, I think in Holland, uh, and got even more uh, precise measurements of planetary and stellar motion. And this didn't have any, this had no direct relevance to the Copernican turn. Um, in fact, you could make the argument that it was Copernicus's great accomplishment to ignore the mountains of big data, as it were, and, or, you know, they were fit to the wrong model. So his thought actually wasn't a optimization technique that modern people would call data science. It was quite the opposite. It was actually stepping outside of that entire paradigm. So, um, but as we move forward, the storytellers have cast the enlightenment in what I call a kind of Comtean framework. And August Comte was the scientist philosopher in the 19th century who coined the term sociology and then wrote extensively on the future of all of humanity was the perfection of scientific theory leading into uh, technology that would basically rewrite the world. So we were kind of uh, hurling towards a utopian future that was completed um, by a mature sci for science and then a mature technology infrastructure that was it's kind of like the 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 ultimate the final solution <laughs> the whole it was the ultimate solutionism uh, for techno science that it would basically do away with disease and usher in a an era of um, human happiness that would never end right so this kind of idea wasn't actually core to the enlightenment the enlightenment was really about the human mind the human mind's cap capacity to creatively to have creative leaps based on observation not to complete observation with something like data science but it was like a it was really a the Enlightenment properly understood was a story of, of extreme human capability, right? Um, and it was, a, it was really, it should have been a lesson for a kind of uh, a, res a respect for, non, for a non-data specific or, you know, non-mechanistic science, if you will. But it didn't end up that way. And we added a new layer to it roughly since the, com the computer revolution. The information technology revolution, which you can argue started in about started in about 1940. So we added this layer of optimization, which is a very explicit data science concept, and it's it's the idea that the best thing we can do uh, in a scientific or technological framework is optimize for some solution. And it turns out that this kind of thinking. Um, I think arguably has kind of led to this unintended consequence of the ignorance of something more basic and prior, which is insight and innovation. Um, so, so we so we have been on a trajectory away from the original kind of uh, picture of the enlightenment. I argue. And um, when we now are sort of ironically sheltering in a place, sheltering in place just like Newton was doing for a different place, 
listening to podcasts where I heard groups maybe I generally respect said if it wasn't for the internet, the internet is the only thing keeping us sane. Um, and that kind of is true as, as far as it goes, but it's also sort of part of the problem.
this this is this is this is not a simple thing to do, but you know maybe the long term uh, returning to normal, maybe the long term consequence of this pandemic. It at least set some very initial seeds for a rethinking of modernity and an important retooling of the technoscience narrative that fo that was formed basically by zealots after the enlightenment and left out probably the most important humanistic element so I, i'd want to say that and if we have started by virtue of of uh sheltering in place a great idea like newton did um if we have started something like an appreciation for the a need for a new renaissance then all of this Perspect some synthetic perspective rather than be just pure devastation and pure loss. So, I mean, I want to write something like that. The key is, um, you know, when you, well, this is outside, this is like stepping in, this is like what do they say in a movie when the, the actor talks to the audience, to the viewer, stepping through the fourth door. This is like stepping through the fourth door of the podcast. I want to write something like that. Um, but the problem is you need for people's attention spans for major media outlets, you need a, a good hook, which Newton is a good hook that he was actually sheltering in place from a pandemic, the black plague, while he did his most important work. That itself is a gem for modern readership. But then, you know, when you're arguing for a new Renaissance, you know, a lot of what people are coming to realize, and this is, I, I haven't decided yet which branch to go down. Um, but a lot of what people are starting to realize is not the discrepancy between insight and technology, um, but the, the inability of a techno-scientific worldview to account for basic sociality, so, social, sociality, socializing, basic emotional, social needs that we have as human beings aren't adequately met by technological replacements. People see this now where they, they sort of complained and sensed it before, but people can directly see now that what we mean by getting together is not looking into a screen. So it's made, I think, the, the, just the emotional, the need for an emotional renaissance or a kind of broader speaking social renaissance where we start to, uh, we start to value the parts of uh, the, a life well-lived or the human condition, if you will, we start to value the parts that do not actually lend themselves to technological solutionism. And in fact, you could argue, you can see this more clearly that actually technological solutions to certain problems are false solutions and they do more harm than good. Now, it's hard to argue that in the case of having the internet available when we're all stuck at home. But it's a lot easier to argue that, I think, when life returns whenever it does to normal and we realize, we don't forget, that is, that uh, for every itch that modern modernity wants to scratch, uh, data optimization and, and technological surrogates are, are, are not adequate means to scratch them. So we can, you know, we live among the machines as it were <laughs> we we and there's no there's sort of no going back with that but it, like huge revolutions and renaissances of thought 
can start from a just a slightly better appreciation and acknowledgement of the of the core problem you know let's call spending a billion dollars on an app for or whatever it would be the investment out of silicon valley uh for you know a new you know yeah an app for surveillance or for tracking something or for you know, better, higher quality visual conferencing. Let's call all that a solution to a specific problem, not a general solution to our problem. And um, let's call it even, you know, consumerism, <laughs> as opposed to other elements of, of life. Um, because, you know, I think we're just, we're missing out. And I, I just don't want the end, the story of humanity to end up being the a you know, just hurtling into the abyss because we are unable to see how the work, the work still needs to be done to make, uh, if not, well, certainly not a utopia, but a better, a better future. So I want to do that, but it's got to all be, it's got to be stitched together more tightly with hooks. Um, right now I have, the internet is the only thing keeping us sane um, Isaac Newton sheltering in place and coming up with a universal gravitation and, um, a few other points I want to make, but we will see. Oh, I'll add this in very quickly. Freud. So there's evidence like through hundreds of years of hundreds of years of history, like we have our curmudgeonly, you know, technology critics today. But through hundreds of years of history, people have been noticing a kind of negative correlation between happiness and uh, technological progress. So Freud actually points this out in Civilization and Its Discontents. He said, look, we've like he's sitting in 18 late, you know, 1870s or something uh, over in Vienna in Western Europe. And he's saying, look, we've got the steam engine, we've got electricity, we've got better me- methods for medicine, for sanitation. Everything is sort of getting better visibly. But all, you know, he sees all this disenfranchisement from people. He sees just like the increase of misery and, and anxieties and fears and ennui and all these things that are, that are really maladies of the emotional or spiritual human condition. And he makes the inference that in fact there's this kind of correlation like the more we urbanize and industrialize the more society in terms of happiness anyway gets further threatened so that we're constantly in need of yet more modern techniques to fix and adjust people who are only broken by virtue of living in this world that now presents a kind of drudgery and anxiety as a basic means of life so you know we've got that and we've got even we've got the whole romantic movement uh the poets who were arguing this and william blake who said the mind forged manacles right so the way the ways that we box ourselves in by the things that we invent and so on so there's actually a rich tradition of trying desperately to keep the world view writ large from collapsing into consumerism and you know technological futurism um so we we didn't invent it but we haven't really been able to solve it and we've actually added layers of misery to it so i think like uh, broad view you know maybe what's broad view from the 
from the Middle Ages to the Enlightenment, from the Roman or the classic era to the Enlightenment. I mean, these big sort of 500,000 year swings. Like you can actually see people um, constructing really impressive civilizations because they did not settle for narrow visions of what was of what was true and what was false. And I think it's like the best time as we're sheltering in place to kind of get to kind of get that at least the beginnings of, like the enthusiasm for thinking that way. And who knows what can come of it. Um, so that's what I want to do. Like how I get that into a, a piece in, in a, a major media outlet it will have to be a continuing thought process. And I'll have, to come, I'll have to get some really good hooks for the modern reader to get from point A to B and so on. Okay, that's it. I'm a technologist. I started doing a PhD in philosophy at the University of Texas, and I got bored and frustrated. And I felt dumb because I didn't understand this highly specialized and artificial use of English <laughs> to, to, you know, to tackle all these problems. And it, it seemed just complicated and like a spaghetti code for natural language. And so I switched to computer science where there's a, a, a natural or an artificial language, or I should say a formal language, but it makes perfect sense. And, um, I was more comfortable working on computer science applications and using computer science concepts to address computer science problems than I was using this contrived uh, philosophical lingo in the philosophy department. And there was, to, honestly, there were a lot of reasons in retrospect that to take philosophy. And I think just in a literary sense, it has been... Uh, a, a large value to writing um, because you know you are at the end of the day you're using you're using natural language to get at fundamental issues and so a lot of the underlying landscape conceptual landscape of things you will talk about when you're doing when you're writing I'm pretty much here I'm thinking literary nonfiction um, um, but you know you'll 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 bump up against the distinctions that are made in philosophy, ones that have been made all the way back to Plato. So there's value in knowing the tradition. There's value in some even technical problems that arose in analytic philosophy, analyzing language and the meaning of language and um, how language refers. Um, and you know that work actually filtered into computer science, and so. There's not a real sharp divide in certain areas in computer science and natural language processing, for instance, like the co-reference problem and the anaphora resolution and those problems go back to the use of definite descriptions and the, the unique refer, referring, uh, the, the definite descriptions as unique re references in language. Um, that goes back to Russell and his um, treatment of that. And so... Um, you know, yeah, like I don't begrudge or regret studying philosophy, but at the end of the day, like I'm a technologist. It's like, you know, the things I think about, the way that I address problems, you know, it just has been occurring to me 
in this la in this spring while we've all been sequestered and sheltering in place and I've been doing a lot of work reacclimating and reacquainting myself to computer science techniques concepts and tools that a lot of how I think is you know I think programmatically because it it sort of ha you know you you sort of end up in this place where you kind of you get um you sort of intuitively understand what's going on in certain domains in technology if you can think like somebody that's writing computer code. That doesn't mean you're limited. It doesn't mean you yourself are a computer. It means like those kind of thought processes are very powerful for very rapidly disentangling what would appear to be a huge complicated mess to an outsider. But you can sort of carve that up into systems and subsystems and see how things are interacting and see the problems and see the so potential solutions. And you don't do this magically. It takes training and it takes proclivity in the first place. And you don't get it right all the time either. So there's no claim here that there's some kind of, you know, it's, but it, but it, there is a there is an underlying um, skill set that I enjoy actually, and that I take pride in, quite frankly, and that's being a technologist or a computer scientist. And um, you know, I think in some sense, um, in some sense, I guess I'll end with this. This is just an aside. It was intended just to for me to just blurt that out, to get that out. But, you know, in some sense, the book, the book wasn't a stretch for me to be, to express a, an argument effectively about artificial intelligence at its limits where people argue it. Um, that it was a stretch to express that in a literary and humanistic way, as it were. But at the end of the day, I think the, the effectiveness of the book was largely because I drew on experience and background knowledge and explained it in computer science terms. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I think viewed correctly, it's a big virtue. It's a, it's a, huge, uh, it's a huge plus for dealing with these issues. Um, and there's another discussion I think that we can have some other time about what's left, what falls outside the circle of uh, computer science thinking or technology thinking. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. Um, you know, the sorts of things that, the kind of problems that you might want to express or think about outside of computer science. But um, it's a surprisingly powerful paradigm and it certainly it more than I think I've realized until recently has formed you know part of my core um you know my my core skills and my core competencies and my core my sort of basic way of approaching problems and I think it's good so I will leave it at that